Lord, Jesus, your word says that our, our hearts are deceitful above all else. For some reason, Lord, we just seem to have this amazing capacity to not only lie to other peoples, but even to lie to ourselves, Father, and to mistake what we think is right for wrong and what we think is wrong for right, God. And even as believers, Lord, we continue to oftentimes deceive our ways and deceive ourselves in in both small ways and great. So, Lord, this morning I pray, God, that your word would just really penetrate our hearts. God, I pray that we would open our hearts, God, that we would not fear the conviction of your Holy Spirit, that we would be open, God. It's not our job to fix it the moment we come under conviction. Our job is to just hear it, to take it in and repent, to confess it, to just acknowledge, Lord, God, there's something broken me that I just didn't even see before. Now you've shown it to me, God. Help me to just confess it out loud, God, to you, maybe even to a brother or a sister. God, and help me, empower me to repent of it over time, Lord, as you provide the power, God, and the grace and the love that, that enables us to do that. In your son's name, amen. All right, so we are, I'm going to move this, sorry. We are continuing in, an, in Isaiah, and uh, we will be in Isaiah chapter 5, starting in, in the first part of chapter 5. This is a love song, and while you're going there, while you're looking at that up, I, I was reminded recently that this past November, 40 years ago, this past November, 909 people drank cyanide that was flavored with a grape flavoring and died. Can you believe that? Do you remember that? You know what I'm talking about? James, James, Jamestown, ringing the Bob Jones. I'm sorry? Jonestown, thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate the correction. <laughs> that's what, that's the, Larry is, is uh, applying this morning's message and he doesn't even know it yet. <laughs> Yeah, Jonestown, I mean, what a crazy tragedy. Can you imagine these 909 people, 304 of which were children? Just horrible. It's awful. And not only did they actually do this, but they did it understanding what they were doing. It wasn't like they had been tricked. They didn't know that they were drinking cyanide. They knew it. They were, they were 900 of them were literally committing a mass suicide, including their children. You know, how, is that just crazy? I mean, do you just, I, I, we just can't understand something like that. And yet, you know, <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm doubting my, my knowledge. Bob Jones, yes? Not Bob. Jim Jones, thank you. Phew. Man, see, that's why we need each other, to get to the truth. Jim Jones, thank you. Jim Jones was actually a minister of one of America's mainline denominations. Jim Jones and his congregation confessed the name of Christ as their personal Savior. All right? Now, to be fair, they happen to be part of a denomination that has probably the most liberal sort of acceptance of someone as a pastor. Jim Jones actually had no formal training. He didn't go to a seminary. He had no doctrinal training in the gospel. And yet, though, on the surface, 
he presented himself as a Christian church and, in fact, was a member. His church was on the rolls of this mainline American Christian denomination. Right? It's just, just astounding, shocking. I think it just really points to, I'm sure all of us in our lives won't experience that kind of extreme self-deception. But isn't it true that we all struggle with, on some level, self-destruction? Self-destruction. It is self-destructive. Self-deception, which is self-destructive. Right? We all struggle with that on some level. So what do we do about that? Let's look about it. How's, how's that work? Isaiah chapter 5. So this is a love song, which means this is poetry, which means this is as much about understanding the truth of this in your head as it is about understanding it in your heart, okay? Think about love songs. This is a love song. Think about what are some of the most popular songs in our culture, Izzy? They're, you're, you're a music guy. <laughs> okay, this is a participation sermon. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> But aren't, aren't many of the, of the most popular songs in our culture love songs? And aren't they, most of them, a particular kind of love song? Are they not love songs about love that has been harmed in some way, broken in some way, right? Especially country love songs, right? You know, she ran out on me, my dog died, my, poor, my truck broke. So as we, sorry, as we go through this passage, Try to hear this both with your mind, but also hear it with your heart. Hear the heart of God. Hear the heart of God and the heart that God has for each of us. So I'm just going re- to read all the way through this love song, and then we'll go back and kind of go through it in, in some more detail. So chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Real quick here, who's talking? Okay, this gets a little bit confusing. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. A really nice way to think about this is Isaiah is stepping into a love song that is being sung amongst the Trinity of God, and it's like Isaiah is the recorder, okay? The voice in this, in this text here is really kind of puts Isaiah as saying out loud what he's hearing the Trinity sing to itself, okay? So another way to think about it is think about the Father singing a love song to the Son, or the Holy Spirit singing a love song to the, to the Father. May the Father singing through the Holy Spirit a love song to his song. That's kind of, I think, gets at some of the trinity that kind of lives in the, the way that this text is worded. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared of it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
I love passages of the Bible that are very poetic because the, the metaphor, the imagery helps us really get beyond just, you know, the, the hard kind of factual information, but to the heart of what's going on here. And if, if our relationship with God and if God himself is not characterized by a heart, by emotion, by, by passion, then I don't know, I don't, I, guess, I don't know who is in that, it is in, in that case. So I love that. He gives a sense, it's like God is saying, look, I have done everything in my power. Look, look at what I've done. Let's, let's take a look. Let's go back here and, and look at what God has done for his people. And by the way, I love, not only do I love it when God communicates in poetry and metaphor, but I love it even more when he interprets his own po- poetry and metaphor. So there in verse 7, we have an interpretation. And just, just so we understand, have the context of what this interpretation is, what this metaphor is representing, just look at that briefly again in verse 7. It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? House of Israel, the men of Judah, basically the people of God, right? The vineyard of the Lord is the house, is God's people. God's people, I love this, God's people are his pleasant planting. God takes great pleasure in planting his people and loving on his people and taking care of his, his vineyard, his people. He takes great pleasure in that. And he looks for fruit, and a particular kind of fruit, a fruit of justice and a fruit of righteousness. That's what he's looking for, right? So how is it that he's, he's planted his people? Let's take it from the top and kind of see some of the aspects of how he plants his people and, and, and why that should result in some fruit of righteousness and justice. Okay, verse 2, he dug it and, cl- okay, well, first of all, verse 1 kind of midway through verse 1, it says, My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Number one, God plants his people in the fertile space of his love and his truth. Okay? He plants us where there's great truth and great love. It's fertile. Yesterday, Donna had a couple of little flowering bushes. I don't remember what they're called. Lantanas, I think. Lantanas. That she wanted to plant them. Um, I'm up, man. Saturday morning, I'm, I'm planting lantanas. So, and there are a couple spots that she'd picked out to plant. And we've lived at that house now for 20 years. And these couple spots are well shaded. They're pretty moist. They get a lot of leaves and debris on them. So I start digging into this ground, and it's just that. You just right, know right away. It's just like that rich, that certain loamy smell of ground that's real rich. It's got a lot of decaying things in it and lots of bugs and lots of worms and all of this stuff. And you're going, oh, okay, this is, this is the right kind of soil to plant these plants in. They're, these plants are going to just love this soil. And that was the case for this, these two spots I planted. And then there's this other spot where I planted, and it was, there was like an inch layer of some good fertile soil. And then right below that was that original sort of decimated granite soil that is most of what track homes are built on and just compacted hard as concrete and sandy with no no fertile, n- nothing, no nourishment inside of it. And I thought, okay, I wonder which set of lantanas are going to do better. We'll see. I think the, one, the first couple that I plant are going to do a lot better than the second couple. My wife's looking at me, well, why don't you fertilize it then? What's going on? <laughs> 
But the Lord has planted his people, and I would say he has planted us in the fertile soil of his love, in the fertile soil of his gospel. Verse 2, not only is it fertile, but he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Notice he's, he's, not, he's not content with this putting us in the ground, but he wants to dig into that soil. He wants to loosen it up. He wants to get the big rocks out and the big boulders. And don't we experience that as we proceed in our Christian life? Jesus is turning over the soil of our hearts and revealing the boulders and the rocks that get in the way of our healthy growth, right? And loosening that soil up and make, giving it room to breathe. And not only that, he, we are a choice. His people are a choice vine. Choice vine. He chose you. A lot of us feel like and, and believe when we become Christians, like, hey, I've, I've chosen to become a Christian. I've chosen God. And you have. But the paradox is, is that God chose you. And it's probably more truer that God chose you than, he, than you chose him, right? But he caught, and he caught, if he chose you, you are his choice vine, okay? You are a choice vine. He chose you, and he chose, this, chose you very on, on purposely knowing exactly who you are, and he calls you his choice vine. Is that good news? I think so. Continuing verse 2, he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. So God, not only does he plant us, but he protects us. He builds a watchtower. He builds a hedge. He builds a wall, and he protects us. And he protects us from destruction, from intruders, from invasion. Okay. And then what's he looking for? He's looking, he's looking for it to yield grapes. And, of course, in context, we recognize he's looking for a particular kind of grape and that is wine grapes, right? Because he's dug a wine vat. So he's looking for wine grapes. Why wine grapes? Why use the metaphor of wine grapes? Because wine grapes have so many great, great components to them. There's a unique blend of sugars and bitterness and just this perfect blend that is excellent for producing wine, right? And wine is a blessing, is it not? When used properly, wine can be very much a blessing. <laughs> Notice I say when used properly, it's, it's quite a blessing. So verse 3, And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? Whatever that I have not done for it. When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? The Lord's saying, look, if we're not producing wine grapes, instead we're producing wild grapes or sour grapes, Who's, where's the problem lie? Is the problem with God? He's not cultivating us enough. He's not protecting us enough. He's not giving us enough fertile ground to grow in. Is, is it the problem with God? God's saying, look, I've done everything you possibly need, everything you possibly need to produce wine grapes, grapes of blessing, grapes of righteousness and justice, I've provided for you, and yet you are producing wild grapes. So a little thing about wild grapes and wine grapes. If I gather up a bunch of wild grapes and put them on your table, and I get, gather up a bunch of wine grapes and put them on the table, you look at those and just cursory look at that, you're probably not going to be able to tell the difference. They pretty, pretty much look the same. But I guarantee you, you will absolutely know the difference if you try to taste wine made from grape, wine grapes versus wine made from wild grapes. Wild grapes are incredibly bitter. Even wine grapes, I mean, we're used to table grapes, which are really sweet, big, full, juicy, sweet thing. 
Wine grapes taste bitter, a little bit more bitter than that, but they still have, the ri again, the right amount of sugars in them, the right amount of sweetness to produce really nice wine. But wild grapes, forget about it. They're just awful. They're a terrible thing. I was doing a little background research, and there's a few guys who are like, you know, the, the woodsy goodsy guys who say, hey, no, if you, if you wait until after the first frost and then pick some wild grapes while you're hiking on the trail, they make a really great trail mix, you know, and I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, you guys are the guys who think, you know, tree bark is fine dining, so I'm not buying, I'm just not buying it, Ralph, what do you think? I, I'm not going for the wild grape thing on the side of the trail, but the point is, is they can look, uh, you know, just a superficial, quick look at these two bundles of grapes, they can very much look the same. And how do we tell them apart, right? I, I'm going to get into that a little bit more, but the, the key point here is who's moved? If, the, if we're not producing grapes of righteousness and justness, who's got the problem? Well, the pro we have the problem. It's the problem is not with the Lord, the problem is with us. So what is the Lord's response to them not producing the grapes he's looking for. Verse 5, And now I, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, not, rain no rain upon it. Notice, how the, notice the contrast here. Notice how, the, again, so often I see this in, in Hebrew scripture, the mirror image. You know, and initially God is saying, look, I, I provided, I've planted you on a fertile hill, but because you're producing wild grapes, you're going to become a waste, right? I've, I've um, and you, you'll see this up on the board, I think. No, you won't. I took it out of the notes. But just notice this, this mirror image. You know, instead of, of cultivating us and turning over the soil of our lives. Instead, he's going to cease from hoeing. He's going to cease from stirring up our hearts. You know what? When the Lord, the conviction of the Lord comes on you as you're learning, as you're studying a passage, and suddenly you realize, ah, something that you've believed in for a long time and some idea that you've held near and dear to your heart may not actually be in fact true, there's a tendency for us to kind of want to draw back from that and to kind of recoil from that and go, oh, no, that can't be. You know, that I've, I've based a big chunk of my life on, on this maybe falsehood. But I think the challenge and encouragement of the morning is, you know what, don't do that. Even as scary as it might be, when we're under conviction, don't withdraw from that conviction. Because, you know, it's not like the people in... Jamestown, Bob Jones, disciples, I got it, Jamestown. It's not like, uh, no, I missed it again. Jonestown. Bob, you got it, never mind. It's not like the people in his church just woke up one morning and said, you know what, this guy has got it dialed in, and he says I should drink cyanide, I'm drinking cyanide, right? They didn't get there one, one day. It's a slow and gradual process of some charismatic guy giving them a mixture of truth and lies gradually over time to the point that you eventually get to really far out there craziness, no? And none of us should think that we're immune to that, okay? That's really the message of the morning. 
don't think you're not immune. Just even as a believer, even though you've confessed your faith in Christ, even though all of these, this first part of this love song is true about you, and by the way, if you've confessed Christ as your Savior, Savior, then I believe all this first part of this love song is true about you. God has planted, you are his choice vine. He has planted you on a fertile hill. He is continuing to turn over the soil of your heart. He continues to protect you. All those things are true, okay? But it doesn't mean that you're not immune to deception, okay? You're not immune to the deceit of the devil and all of his demons and all of the people who are under his influence, including our own hearts. As I said in my prayer, Scripture says that our own hearts are deceitful above all things. Amen? So I want to look, look a little bit more deeper at this idea of, well, you know, both grapes can kind of look the same. How do we discern them? Going back to this interpretation segment in verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay, so the metaphor is these wild, the, the, the grapes, the, the wine grapes that God is looking for is justice and righteousness. But instead, he's getting the grapes of what? He's getting the grapes of bloodshed and an outcry. But here's what's really interesting. In the Hebrew, and this will be up on the board, the Hebrew, the word for justice that's used and the word for bloodshed that use, is used sound almost identical to each other. So the Hebrew word for justice, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this. I need a lot of grace here, all right? The, 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 word, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpah. The Hebrew word for bloodshed is, is mispah. Okay? Mishpah, mispah. Sound almost the same, but they mean two completely and totally different things. And so what, is that by accident? Does he just happen to grab those two words? Well, this word for bloodshed, mispah, is a very uncommon word. He had to really dig into his vocabulary to find this word, all right? So this is Isaiah through the power of the Holy Spirit, very purposely choosing two words that sound almost identical, but one means justice, the other one means bloodshed, all right? We look at righteous versus outcry. The word Hebrew word used for righteousness, okay, here we go. Sadaqwa, the Hebrew word used for outcry, sakwa. Right? Uh, you can look at it on the spilling. It's like, look how the difference between these two words is one letter in both cases. The only difference between the Hebrew words is just one letter. Why, why is Isaiah doing that? Why is God doing, speaking this through Isaiah in this particular way? Because he's reinforcing this idea that, you know what? Wild grapes and wine grapes, they can look the same. You know what? Righteousness and, and an outcry can sound the same, right? Justice and bloodshed, the words can sound the same, but they mean two completely different things. What's the point? The point is, is we are easily deceived. We think we see table grapes, but actually we're looking at wild grapes. We think we hear righteousness and justice, but instead we're hearing bloodshed and an outcry. That's the condition of the human heart. Even as redeemed believers, we are vulnerable to this, okay? And if, you, if you're still not quite buying it, we'll go, we're going to get into 
the woes that follow in the, in the next message. There's six woes. Aren't you looking forward to it? Great chipper message on six woes. Um, but there's redemption in the midst of woe. Um, if you look down, I think it's uh, like the fourth woe, verse 20. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see that? And clearly what God is saying here is, look, I've done everything I can do. I've redeemed you. I've created you. I've birthed you. I've redeemed you. My son has paid the price for your sins, right? I've atoned for you. I've reconciled you. But guess what? You are still going to produce blood and an outcry in your life. Anybody here go from the moment of, of regeneration, of receiving Christ, of becoming a Christian, to a level of perfection instantly? Anybody, anybody here do that? Has anybody, even after years and years and years of walking with the Lord, have we achieved to perfection yet? No. We are going to produce blood and an outcry in our life. If you think back on your life, even as a believer, are there people who have been hurt by you, wounded by you? Are there people who have bled because of your choices or something you said? And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Right? I think all of us would say yes if we're honest with ourselves, right? But here's the thing that's really tough. Those are the, as I say that, you may think of things that you're aware of, but how much are we just completely missing? How much do we think, oh, we really made a difference in that person, and in reality, we actually just really hurt them and wounded them? I tell you, that's the worst feeling in the world. I mean, I've been there and done that. There's been times when I, I, my intent was to try to bless somebody, and instead I wound up approaching it in a way, and I had motives that weren't quite right, and I wound up just wounding them and hurting them. Am I alone in that? Anybody else here? Right. Been there? Yeah, so we have this challenge. We have this problem. How, who can save us from this heart of deceit? How do we go about it? All right, um, I think one answer, I, by the way, the answer to that question, how do, we, how do we learn to recognize, you know, sour grapes versus grapes of fruit of righteousness and joy and blessing? How do we learn to recognize that? You know, is it just something that just happens automatically? We receive Christ and the Holy Spirit is going to empower us, just boom, automatically, and we'll just be able to recognize all that? I don't think so. I don't think Scripture, there's any evidence of Scripture that that's just going to happen that way. How is it? How do we go about learning how to recognize our own fruit? And how do we go about learning how to produce greater fruit for the Lord in terms of his love and grace and truth and blessing? I want to look a couple places. First, real quick, briefly going to look at a passage in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews talks a lot about, actually Hebrews is addressed to a group of Christian Jews, or early first, second, first century Christian Jews who have come to faith in Christ, but now they're starting to suffer a lot of persecution and they're starting to miss their, that what they had as, you know, in their Jewish culture. And some of them are beginning to shrink back from the gospel. And so this author of Hebrews is really challenging them to not 
not resist the Holy Spirit, not harden their hearts, not shrink back, but remain faithful with the Lord. And in this passage, chapter 5, verse 11 says, and just to give you a little bit of context, the author's been talking about Christ and how superior Christ is and that Christ is the, the most superior high priest. Not only is he the greatest high priest, but he's a high priest that can really empathize with us and really understand what we're going through. So that's what he's talking about. And it gets a little bit complicated in how he's talking about you know, priesthood and Melchizedek, which is a whole other sermon that I'm not going to get into. So he, and he con- continues in verse 11, says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Since you have become dull of what? Hearing. Right? Same idea. You can't hear the difference between these two words. You've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. Catch this. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, the ability to have discernment, the ability to discern, okay, what kind of fruit am I producing in the lives of people? It takes practice. It takes rigorous training. It's not something that we're just going to stumble into. It's not something we're just going to sort of absorb through osmosis by just hanging out. All right? It takes rigorous, committed uh, training and constant practice. I love that. Constant practice. It's funny how in every aspect of our life we get that, right? In terms of training for our career, in terms of ongoing training for our area of, of knowledge or our area of specialty. Uh, look, I, I got to tr- be trained. I got to go to school. I got to get a degree. I got to train for what it is I want to do. And it's hard training. And we put in the time and we put in the hours and we work at it, right? But when it comes to spirituality, when it becomes comes to growing up and maturing in the Lord, somehow it's like we've got this sort of Western Protestant Christian idea, I don't know, that says, you know, I've, I've confessed my, my sin to the Lord, I've named him as my Savior, and now he's just going to make me better, right? He's just going to turn me into a good person, just sort of wave a wand and I'm a good person. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Now, he empowers all of that, Right? Apart from, as I appreciate Jared's prayer this morning, apart from Christ, we can do what? No thing. It's him that's going to empower this rigorous training and practice that we're able to discern the, the fruit of our own lives. But we got to participate. we got to show up in that, right? I mean, in this language, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I mean, it's one thing to be a child when you're six years old. It kind of starts to be a problem if you're a child when you turn 21 or 22. It's like, okay, dude, it's time to get a job and take responsibility. And to be a child when you're 40, then something's really wrong, right? And I think for all of us spiritually, we can relate on one level or another to, you know, Lord, I'm just not where I ought to be. I'm not as mature as I ought to be. Well, is the problem with the Lord? Is the Holy Spirit somehow deficient that we're not where we ought to be? I don't think so. I think the problem is, is we're just not serious about, you know what, Lord? I want to produce righteous fruit, fruit that's a blessing, fruit that 
that makes people understand you deeper, makes people understand you on a heart level deeper, based on the example of my life. You know, that's what I want. Well, if you want that, you've got to invest in it. And if you choose not to invest in it, well, you choose not to invest in it. And guess what? You're going to have a table full of rotten, wild grapes. And you're going to look back on your life, and you're going to look back at your friends and your family and your church and your brothers and sisters and go, man, all that wasted time, all that, all that hurt, all that harm, all that blood, all that outcry, people screaming about being treated the wrong way. And oh, do we blow it? Of course we blow it, which is why we gotta, we got to engage in this. we got to show up in it. So how do we do it? How, do we, how are we trained and how do we constantly practice distinguishing good from evil? How do we do that? Let's go to uh, Ephesians 4, one of, of course, one of my favorite places. And the list I could create in answer to that question, how do we train ourselves, it, it could be, it's a long list, right? I, I'm sure I could come up with 30 things you all should go home and do this week to train yourselves to discern between good and evil. But I know that none of us would be able to do any one of them if there's a list of 30. So I'm just going to give you a list of two. All right, this is a list of two, and in my mind, I think it's actually kind of low-hanging fruit to use to, uh, pardon the pun, but um, I'm going to Ephesians 4. You're probably all there already. I'm too busy talking to get there. Ephesians 4, verse 11. How are we doing? We here? We okay? Anybody want to produce more? Abundant, righteous fruit of God's blessing and righteousness. Anybody here want to be able to recognize when we're producing sour grapes, when we're harming people in a, in more effectively? Yeah? Are we there? All right. Here's, how, here's two ways to do that that I think are very powerful. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. All right. How do we mature? How do we no longer be children? We put ourselves under the teaching of God. And how do we get put ourselves under the teaching of God? We listen to, we obey, we take in the teaching of of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. All right, you know, as Christians living now, we are so blessed. I, I, don't, I don't think we quite realize how blessed we are. I mean, to the people that Isaiah is talking to, they have the Pentateuch. They have uh, the words, the, the, the wisdom literature. They have some of the prophets. But they don't have the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They don't have all the epistles, right? They don't have the four gospels, but we do. We have this amazing revelation of God and his love for us. But you know what? We need to be trained. We need to practice. We need to continue ongoing until the day we pass from this world. We need to put ourselves under the teaching of God as he's expressed it through his apostles, through his prophets, and even through his lowly shepherds and teachers. Right, right, Jared, Robert. Yeah. 
and that's a, and it's and it's an ongoing process for all of us. I, I'm struck by, as I, I shared earlier, how something that I thought was absolutely a biblical concept, and I even had a verse for it, and I was just, wow, that that's absolutely true. And the more and more I teach scripture, I'll run across something and I'll go, wait a second, whoa, I, I learned this verse as a memory verse, which I'm all for memory verses, but I learned it completely out of context. And I completely miss the meaning of that passage. And that continues to happen for me. So we, we all need to continue to engage in this process of learning from God's, God's teachers. So that's number one. And where are we going to do that? We're going to do that Sunday morning. We're going to do that at Bible study, Saturday morning with the men, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to listen and learn from teachers. And by the way, I, here's where I'm convicted. Do I really come Sunday morning? Do I come Saturday morning to the men's group? with an attitude and a mindset of, Lord, I've got rocky soil of a heart, and I need you to dig in there and turn it over and stir it up and show me, as David says in the psalm, show me, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me. And if there is, show it to me. And once you show it to me, God, and help me. Help me to confess it. Help me just admit that it's true. I mean, that's half the battle right there. And then help me to repent from it. Help me to turn the other way from it. Help me to learn and practice my way out of this behavior. Okay? And that sometimes takes a short time. Sometimes it takes a whole lifetime. Right? Given what, depending on what the particular issue is. So not only just show up here, not, not just fill a seat, but show up here. I need to show up here. I think we all need to show up here with this attitude. Lord, show me if there's something there that I need to know that I'm not seeing that I'm mistaking as true but it's really false. I'm mistaking it as loving but it's actually hurtful and harmful. Right? That's a, the, the big revelation about this the pop psychology term about codependency. That the idea of codependency is people think that they are doing something loving for the other person but in reality what they're doing is enabling the continue and bad destructive behavior that's not good for them. Right? But That's a perfect illustration of thinking you're doing something good for somebody but in, in actuality, in reality, you're harming them. Okay? And we need constant training to train ourselves out of that. That's number one. Number two, uh, <coughs> I left off with no longer being children, tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, you know, some of you hear me say this all the time, Rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Catch all that? Whew. All right. Let me. The, the way I always summarize this passage, and you've heard me say it before, Christianity is a team sport. The easiest way for us to deceive ourselves, the easiest way for us to walk in some level of self-deception is to never share that area of our lives with anybody else, right? If you never say it out loud to somebody else, it's easy for your mind to just deceive itself. It's easy to believe something that's not true when when you just kind of have your own internal head conversation with it, but you never say it out loud. But I, I guarantee you, because I've experienced it, and Scripture says it, and I think this verse is saying that, the moment 
you have something that you're struggling with and you're, ah, you know, there's something here, the moment you begin to say it out loud in a confessional way, either to God in out loud prayer or, you st- or, even, or in addition to out loud to a brother or sister that you trust. So how, how okay, let me put it this way. Have you ever had this experience where you start to say something out loud to your spouse or a brother or sister, and, you, and as you're saying it, you're going, this is, this is a bunch of baloney, man. I, I, <laughs> I can't believe I'm even saying this. I know the answer before I even get to the end of what I'm saying because this is, this, this is not true. As, and, and you don't really realize it until you say it out loud. right? We need each other. We need to... Uh, as scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so when one man sharpens another. We talked about that yesterday in the men's study. We, Mike alluded to it a little bit earlier. We had just an awesome discussion yesterday morning, and there was some disagreement. Um, I, won't, I won't name name, <laughs> name the parties, but I certainly was one of them. There was some disagreement on, on certain aspects, but we were able to talk that through in a spirit of love and in a spirit of, hey, we really want to get to what's true here, right, so that we're edified and built up and grow in our in maturity, that's never going to happen by yourself. You're never going to be a solo Christian and grow up in the Lord. It's just not possible. It's not doable. So you need to be part of community. You need to be plugged in where you can participate with your mouth and your mind and your heart and talk through what's going on in your life, not just the pretty presentation stuff, but the hard things, the challenging things, the things that you're wrestling with, the thing that God is wrestling you with, the things that God is cultivating in your heart and getting in there and breaking up hard soil and turning turning over rocks, right? And then all of a sudden there's all these worms and bugs and beetles and eeh. But you know what? We need to uh, we need to we need to expose that to the light of day. We need to get some air into that soil and talk it through with one another in the context of biblical community. The other error, by the way, is if we all just get together and we have open sharing time and we have this amazing, I don't know, recovery program and we talk about our problems, but there's never any biblical truth brought into that discussion, we're no better off, really. In fact, that's the perfect recipe for a cult. And I'm going to try to say the name, (laughs) right? But that... But that is the perfect recipe. Right? If, if you get a group of people together and you just say whatever you think is true and there's no accountability to the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers who are communicating God's word to you, then you're, you're really vulnerable to just be to group error, group self-deceit. Right? So two key elements, God's truth and the context of biblical community, right? And if you're not, and, and here's, here's one of the reasons why I, I chose this out of many things I could choose in terms of ways for us to grow. The reason I, I, I go here a lot is because as a culture, we are a very fractured culture, right? We have a people, we have a group of people that we work with. We have a group of people that we go to church with. We have a group of people that we do family life with, right? And they are very isolated distinct groups. We have a group of people that we do sports with, with our kids, right? And oftentimes one group has very little to do or very little connection with the other group. I mean, there's some overlap, but not a lot. So we're very fractured as a society. Compare that to 
the disciples spending three years with Jesus, 24-7, eating, sleeping, under the same roof for three years. I mean, if you had that opportunity to, to have that kind of mentorship with, with the Son of God, do you think you'd be a different person after three years? I think so. I mean, this guy started out as, you know, hillbilly fishermen. And three years later, they're turning the entire Roman Empire upside down, right? How did they get there? Well, certainly the power of the Holy Spirit was on them big time, right? It was doing amazing things. And, both and, they were practiced, they were being trained, and they were practicing rigorously and intensely. So the challenge for us, particularly in our culture, we got to find a space to do this. So I'm telling you, Sunday morning is not enough. If, if Sunday morning is your biblical community time, 10 years from now, you're still going to have a lot of sour grapes on your table. I'm just telling you, okay? As your pastor, I, you know, I love you guys. But we're talking about real life here, and real life has lots of hurt in it. And we can do incredibly destructive things to one another, even as believers, even as committed quote-unquote committed believers, we can still do a lot of harm to one another. How do we avoid that? We avoid that by, you know what, we got to make time for each other. we got to make time for the word of the Lord. we got to make time for our instruction and our training. So I want to challenge you guys. You know what, if you're not in a study, I mean, I don't even want to say Sunday morning is minimal. I, I don't think Sunday morning even meets the standard of minimal, right? I, I'm just being real with you, Okay. If you want to grow in the Lord, if you want to mature in the full stature of Christ, I mean, look at this passage. Look at how connected it is. Just notice how connected it is. I'll read again, starting with 15. Rather, speaking the truth and love, you need both of those, truth and love, 100% truth, 100% love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from which the whole body, what, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped. We're so equipped in this church. There are people in here, God bless, God bless you. There are people in here that do amazing things in this church. Every joint which is equipped, which each part, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We do not grow up as individuals. If we're going to grow, we're going to grow together. You know? You've heard the famous saying our, that our, our greatest strength is our weakest link. Right? We, we grow together. We're in this together. Whether you like it or not, we are in it together. And you've got to make time for us. We need to make time for us as a biblical community to be trained, to practice speaking the truth and love from a sincere heart, a sincere faith, a clear heart clear conscience, a pure heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for your love, God. I thank you so much for what you've done for us. To those who are called according to your purposes, God, that you have planted us, that you've chosen us, that you've planted us on a fertile hill. Lord, that you are continuing to cultivate our hearts and souls, and turn over the loose, the broken, the hard earth of our lives, God, that we might produce the precious fruit of love and joy, righteousness and justice, 
God, give us discernment. God, empower us to commit to this biblical community that we might grow into the full stature of Christ. Father, that we might look back on our lives and see the, just the incredible fruit, God, that you desire, that you mean, that you purpose to put into our lives. That is your purpose, God. It is not your purpose to harm us, God, or to grieve us. It's your purpose to make us fruitful and to bring joy into our lives. God, help us not to resist those hard places. Help us not to resist you, Holy Spirit, when you're speaking words of truth to us in love, telling us, yeah, this has got to change. It's wrong. Lord, give us the faith to chase after you, to walk after you, to stand and abide and dwell with you. Jesus, you said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can produce no thing. Jesus, you said, this is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy might be full. And yet, Lord, we don't know how to love one another. And so often we think we're loving another and we're actually harming one another. Lord, empower us to abide in you, to stand under your teaching, to sit in the instruction of your prophets and your teachers, God. Help us to come together and speak the truth to one another that we might all grow up together into the fullness of your name. Amen.